The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Where should I have you turn your Bibles first tonight? Why don't you turn them to uh, 2 Corinthians for the moment? And we're not going to be there for very long or in any one particular place, but it just struck me this week that... uh, It's time for me to share with you just a reminder about what the Lord is doing in the midst of our days that might be helpful to strengthen and encourage you because we are, in my notes I put, how God is working in the midst of a mess. How God is working in the midst of a mess. So God doesn't see it per se as a mess. He's got it all organized and under control. Everything is in its place and on the shelf and all that like he likes, but uh, it's, it doesn't look like that to us at the moment. We live in trying times for the souls of the righteous. Injustice abounds. Unbelief is nearly everywhere. The plots of evil men carry on around the entire globe. Lawlessness is on the rise. Never, you know, Not that it's never been this bad. Certainly it has. For sure, before the flood it was. And uh, you know, still, you know, throughout the course of history, many times, at least locally, it's been very bad. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Two verses later, the Bible says, by justice, a king gives a country stability. But those who are greedy for bribes tear it down. A king who is just gives stability to a country, but those who are greedy for bribes tear it down. And so, like Lot, we can understand exactly how Lot felt. Remember Lot in 2 Peter 2.7, it was said that uh, righteous Lot was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. He was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. And I trust in some sense that you could say, yes, I have felt that way myself. I've felt that way a lot lately, actually. (laughs) And uh, it's not a nice feeling to have. Uh, it can be a very wearing feeling, a very discouraging feeling, uh, a very tiring feeling. Uh, at the same time, a feeling that might cause you to lose sleep that you need to avoid feeling tired of being <laughs> tired. So you, you're in a no-win situation there. Uh, but we can also rejoice because in that same verse, the Bible says, God delivered righteous Lot. He delivered him. He delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Lot was no angel. He was, the Bible tells us, uh, righteous. His soul was righteous and he groaned because of the evil where he lived. Now, it might take some sanctified imagination to figure out just what was Lot doing there. Some have had fairly unsanctified imagination of what Lot was doing. You know, they said, well, he pitched his tent toward Sodom and then the next thing you know, he's in Sodom. And you don't know exactly why that is. If he's a compromiser, that's the kind of idea that you get. He's just a wicked man and a compromiser and living carnally and all that. But the men of the city don't seem to like Lot too much. They said, you know, something about how you've come in here to judge this place. And, it's, you know, he may be one that was one of the righteous elders of that city sitting at the gate offering his judgment in certain circumstances. And 
So he had decided apparently to tolerate their evil and perhaps to try to reform it from the inside. We don't know that, but perhaps many people have tried to do that, uh, reform a bad system from the inside. This rarely works. Sometimes it does, but most of the time it fails. But he was giving it an effort, it seems, of some sort. Most often, the, the people of God, like Lot, would need to leave a situation in which they find this kind of oppressive sin. But, of course, today, in fact, the, the angels commanded Lot to leave. Why? Because that God was going to judge that place. Today, we might despair of finding a place to flee to. I mean, there's no land for which uh, we can get on the Mayflower and go sail to and, and take up a new life there. They're all spoken for now in the face of the globe, except for perhaps small areas here or there. But you can leave a city or a state or a country if you're persecuted, or you can leave a church or other organization that has gone rotten. My point is not really to focus on that. It's just to say you know, we're in a situation like Lot was, and we can rejoice that God delivered Lot. And and he knows how to do that, the Second Peter is arguing. Uh, God is doing something in the midst of all the stuff that's going on. But what is it? What is it that God is busy doing? We might surmise that he's moving the world uh, step, one step closer each day to the time of tribulation and then the kingdom reign of Christ. And I think we'd almost have to say that's for sure. God's moving us in that direction. But we don't know if, if the tribulation may come in a thousand years or a thousand days or a thousand minutes. We just don't know when the Lord will rapture the church. And so we can't be sure that you know, we're you know, right on the doorstep knocking at the door of the tribulation, so to speak. But on a smaller scale, if you just kind of scale back and say, look, that stuff's too big for me. It's above my pay grade. I'm going to let God deal with that. What is it that God is doing in our personal lives, with the trials that we face in our lives and the life of our church, what we review from Scripture will encourage you that the grown-worthy conduct of the world around us is not entirely bereft of a silver lining, if I can say it that way. God is working still in very important ways. And I've listed a bunch of them. Uh, again, you don't have to jot these down, but if you want to for your notes, I'll try to number them for you. Number one, he's trying to teach us more about himself. And I don't have a Bible reference for this, but I have a Bible book for it. The book of Job. We looked at that at great length on these in these services God is teaching us through this that He is sovereign and He administers His world in the way that He sees fit. Not as we see fit. We certainly would make some different choices about things than what God has done. Just like He taught Job, He's teaching us. You know, who are you, O man, who answers against God? You know, you don't know anything. Who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? I mean, you just don't know much. And so, how can you think that you're going to tell God off as to how to administer His universe? You're not. It's just not going to work. So, He's teaching us about Himself and what He's doing in the world. And I think with Job too, that teaches us to trust God. We'll look at that in more particular in just a second. But it teaches us to know that God is sovereign and is doing what He sees fit in the universe. Have you learned anything about God from all of this? God 
For instance, Daniel says, you know, he, he, he sovereign rules over the kingdoms of, the, of men, sets in places the, the lowliest or basest of men. That's God's business. I don't quite understand that, but he will do what he sees fit. Second uh, Corinthians 1.9 is where you're, I asked you to go. Second Corinthians uh, 1.9. I don't know that I said chapter 1 and verse 9, but I said Second Corinthians. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 9 gives us the second item. God is working in us to guide us to trust Him more. Look at Second Corinthians 1.9. Actually, verse 8, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. We don't know exactly what this was, but I have oft imagined this as a threat to his life, a death threat against Paul by perhaps the Jews who were sick and tired of his preaching against their religious system. And so, whatever the circumstances were, they despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I want you to look at that verse again. Don't just read over that quickly. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. We, we, you know, we figured we're goners. That we should not trust in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves. That is the purpose. That is the purpose. That we not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. God puts you in circumstances sometimes to elevate your trust in Him to the next level. And those are not always the nicest, easiest, peachiest situations that you might experience. So number one, he's teaching us more about himself. Number two, he's guiding us to trust him more. Number three is also in 2 Corinthians. He is working to equip us to comfort other people. Working to equip us to comfort other people as he did for the Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 again, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why did God allow the deaths that have happened in your family? Why did God permit the uh, sicknesses that have touched our church or your circle of acquaintance? Why did God uh, send uh, Pastor Wickert's dad to heaven just now? Why COVID? Why um, the struggles that you've had in your life? Um, Why? Well, among other things, God is equipping you to comfort other people as He did for the Corinthians. And Paul is, is, is manifesting that or illustrating that in his own life. We had the sentence of death even and we've learned that we can trust God and we've learned also then what it is to, to comfort others. We've received the comfort from God so that we can comfort those who are in any trouble. How does God give you comfort? Well, it's not necessarily through some mystical means of you know, uh, comfort waves that come from heaven. It may just be that God has comforted somebody else in this life who in turn comforts you with the comfort that they have learned from God so that you in turn can comfort the next person down the line. God using those 
human means to carry on his comfort ministry, his encouraging, strengthening ministry as he did for the Corinthians. So don't break the link in that chain, friends. God's comforted you, comfort others. Okay. So he's doing something in all the mess that we're in to teach us more about himself, to teach us to trust him more, to equip us to comfort others, and then to help us to strengthen our fellow believers. Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 32. Peter has made a confident assertion that he will follow the Lord even to death. And of course, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And he says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. So, how do you uh, how do you do that? Or, well, just in connection to our theme, God is doing stuff in this world to help us to strengthen our fellow believers. He's, he allows Peter to fall into that trap, that self-made kind of trap of his pride, and then he fails. Pride comes before the fall, and he fails before God, and then he knows how to strengthen his fellow believers. And he does that for evidently for the other apostles despite the fact that he failed. And so failure is not always the end point, right? You don't just fail and fail and just leave it there. You, you, God picks you up and allows you to help strengthen your fellow believers. That's what Peter did. Think of how he did that in Acts chapter 2 with his preaching. Acts chapter 3 with his preaching. Acts chapter 4 and 5 with his bold stand before the Sanhedrin. And Acts uh, chapter, eh, what is it? 11, uh, 10, 10 and 11 going to Cornelius. And then uh, just before that, at the end of 9, uh, raising up Dorcas or Tabitha to life and encouraging the believers and, and all of those things. And, and then who knows how long his ministry went on after that. We just don't know uh, exactly. Church history or tradition tells us a little bit more about that. But uh, he went to strengthen his fellow believers. Paul did the same in Acts chapter 14 after they went and planted churches in certain cities. They went backwards through those cities, back, you know, backtracked rather through them. And it says that he went and not only making disciples, but strengthening the souls of those who believed and telling them through many tribulations we have to enter into the kingdom of God. So he strengthened his fellow believers. Number five on our list, what is God doing in the midst of the mess that we find ourselves in? He's bringing honor to himself. Look at Romans 9. Romans 9. In Romans 9.21, it says this, Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show His wrath and make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. So God is teaching us more about himself, guiding us to trust him more, helping us to comfort others, helping us to strengthen our fellow believers. And number five, bringing honor to himself as he appointed the wicked for the day of judgment and 
to rescue the godly from wickedness. That's what he's done. That's what he's saying here. God can do that. He can make from the same piece of clay some vessels for one thing, some vessels for another thing. And that's his business to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. I have another verse here listed on this little point that I'll share with you. It's in Second Peter and it's 2.9. Uh, this is in the context of Lot who was delivered. And remember, we said you can rejoice, or Lot, Lot could rejoice because God delivered him. We can rejoice because God will deliver us for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. There's the groaning. Verse 9, if God can do that, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows how to do that and that brings him honor and and glory. That's number five, to bring honor to himself. Number six, God's working to point us to a heavenly country. Now, a heavenly country does not mean heaven. I don't understand that to mean heaven. I understand it to be a country whose origin is heavenly or from the heavens. In Hebrews 11.16, we see an example of faithful Abraham, Sarah, and their forebearers. In 11.16, the Bible says, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. A city. I think uh, probably New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband there in Revelation 21 and 22. It's described as the great city of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. But this is a place that is heavenly in origin, heavenly in character, but it's going to be earthly in location. The Bible is very clear about that. Uh, during the millennial kingdom and then beyond in the new heavens and the new earth. So God is trying to point us to a different country. I think um, it's helpful to remember that if you have a passport for this country, that is like your citizenship document for uh, a foreign land that you're allowed to come and go to the United States uh, freely but as a born-again believer in Christ, you have citizenship in another country. And you've got to realize you are absent from your homeland. It's a very odd... How many of you, how many of you traveled internationally? Internationally, yeah. So a half of us here. So it's sometimes you get to feeling a little odd when you're out of your own country. Like, okay, what if something happens to me? Um, I don't know the language here. If I get lost... Uh, you know, uh, just it's, it's it's kind of strange. It's a different feeling when you fly into Miami and you come through customs, immigration, and you're on uh, terra firma U.S. soil, and you're say, I, I, "I belong here." You know, I, I go through the U.S. citizens line. I don't go through the visitors line. I, I get the special special treatment, even if the line is a mile long. <laughs> um, but you know, that's going to be like that when you step into your heavenly abode. Think of that. The feeling of relief that you have that finally I am not in that foreign land where I was before. God is going to bring us to a heavenly country. 
with a heavenly origin, like Abraham and Sarah and their forefathers and those of faith that came after them, recounted in Hebrews chapter 11. Think about that. That is our hope. That is our future, one of our future hopes. And of course, the Lord will be there, which is the best part of all of it. But that can, can kind of settle us down a little bit when it comes to all the groaning that we have here in this world. God is working also, number seven, to prove that our faith and love for God is genuine to us and to others. First um, Peter 1.7 says this. I hope this is just fortifying your soul. It just was good for me to think on these things. Um, instead of thinking on the temporal, you know, the merely temporal, uh, f- physical, political, uh, you know, worldly things. First Peter one seven, uh, you know, you you're grieved by various trials. Verse six says that there's that word again. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There it is, that your faith is its more precious than gold. It's tested by fire. It may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is to prove that our love and faith for God is genuine to us and to others. Like Jesus in the temptations proved His love and faithfulness to God. Or like Abraham when he was tested with regard to Isaac, he passed. That, that was a test that demonstrated his justification. We could say it justified him in the sense that it demonstrated that justification outwardly. It was, a, if you could say, a second kind of ju- justification, not the imputed righteousness kind, but the demonstration kind of his faith and love for God. So God is working to prove our faith and love are genuine. Also, over to the book of James, uh, back a couple of pages in your Bible, James chapter 1. What is God doing in the midst of this mess that we're in? He is increasing our endurance. He is increasing our endurance, our patience, our perseverance. Like the believers of the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad to whom James gave greetings, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience, endurance, perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, keep at itness. That's what he's saying. That this is what God is doing, increasing our endurance so that we will not be, well, spiritually wimpy. Can I say it that way? <laughs> yeah, strong believers. Uh, he's also doing this. Uh, that was number uh, eight, by the way, to increase our endurance. Number nine, to redirect our hope. God is working to redirect our hope. Some people are very hopeless, you know. I mean, if all they have is hope in this world, they're, they of all people are most pitiable to adapt what Paul said in Roman or First Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, if, if all you have is hope in this world, forget it. If, you're, if your hope is in the government, oh, God spare you. You know, if your hope is in uh, military power, same thing. If your hope is in medicine, science, reason, uh, philosophy, y- you are in trouble. Those are human endeavors. Human endeavors. 
not godly ones, not, not God-oriented ones, not ones oriented toward the new heavens and the new earth. So he's, God's trying to redirect our hope. Paul can even rejoice in tribulations in, in Romans chapter 5 when he talks about this very idea. He says in verse 3 of Romans 5, "...we glory in tribulations..." Okay, there's the mess. "...knowing that tribulation, the mess, produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And that hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us." That's number nine on our list to redirect our hope God is working so I hope by now you see that in the midst of all this stuff that's going on, God is busy uh, keeping all these wheels turning, all these plates uh, spinning, you know, all these balls juggling all simultaneously according to His infinite wisdom so that we can grow in our faith and comfort others and learn more about Him and trust Him more and equip others to be strengthened and to honor, bring honor to Himself and to point our attention to a heavenly country and redirect our hope also, to remind us, his work is, number 10, to remind us of the end of all things. The end of all things. I thought of the passage in Psalm 73, verse 17. If I say Psalm 73, you should say Asaph in response. Okay, So just put that little memory um, association in your brain. Okay, Psalm of Asaph. It's not his only participation in the Psalms, but it's the opening of this uh, section in uh, Book 3, Psalm 73, a Psalm of Asaph. And uh, you know he looks at the wicked and he says, you know, how, how can these wicked rich people carry on and have nothing uh, happen to them? Have no problems at all? Uh, you know, he says, I, I was in bad shape because I, I would, I, I thought I was going to fall down and slip. I, I was... I was over it. This stuff was frustrating to me. And then he says in verse 17, until I went into the house of God. The sanctuary of God. And then I understood their end. And that helps us too, my friends. Uh, I've, I've been reading a story of great injustice that occurred to some of our fellow citizens within the last 15 years. And it's terribly frustrating. Gets my blood pressure raised almost to a boiling point. Um, but you have to realize this. The people who did that injustice, if they don't repent, and if they're not caught or not punished now, the judge of all the earth will make everything right. There will be no skating, no escape, no cheating out, no exiting out, you know, stage left to avoid the judgment at the great day. Each and every one will be judged according to their works. And there are some real whoppers that have been done. And people will pay dearly for those things. And that is not a gleeful thought. It's just a thought that gives rest to your feeling of indignation when you see somebody unjustly treated that so frustrates us and we want to fix it. And in this particular case, the justice system in our country did not fix the wrong that was done. And it really is upsetting. At least up to the point that I've read. <laughs> so, um, so to remind us of the end of all things, you go to the house of God, you see their end. Number 11. 
God is working in the midst of this difficulty, number 11, to keep us humble. To keep us humble. Uh, The Apostle Paul went up to the third heaven and he saw things there that no man had ever seen before or you know, could report. So what did God do for him? To avoid him being puffed up in pride, you know, he, he stuck him with a needle to, to pop his balloon. So he had a thorn in the flesh. And that was to keep him from, from exalting himself above measure, beyond measure. And so it, keeps, it kept Paul humble. So God may give you tribulations. He may give you hard things, difficulties, in order to remind you that you need to be humble. Um, humility is hard sometimes. It's easy for us to think more of ourselves than we ought to think. And uh, it, it's, you know, I guess if I could say this, better to learn humility from the Word and, uh, than to learn it by having to get the thorn poked in your flesh. It's not to guarantee that God's not going to do that anyway so you learn more humility. But, you know, let's not be haughty about things. We are just servants of God to keep us humble. Number 12. I know I'm rushing along here, but the time is demanding me to move along. I wanted to give this whole thing to you tonight. He's, God is working in this to make us more holy. To make us more holy. Hebrews chapter um, 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11 say these words. For they indeed, this is human fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them. But He, that is God, chastens us for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Who is more godly in your experience than the elderly saint who has gone through life's ringer many times, struggled with health difficulties, major trials of family, major loss, major difficulties of some sort or another. And you look at their life and you say, boy, I I, I just kind of envy their holiness. Yeah, but you don't envy what they had to go through to get there. No, sir. God wants to make us more holy. So He's working in the midst of this mess to make us more holy. And then finally, and you might have expected me to go here far earlier than this, Romans 8.28, God is working all things together for good. To bring a good outcome for His children. To those that love God and are called according to His purpose, God is working all things together for good. He's not working all good things. He's working all things together for good for the outcome of His children. That's Romans 8.28. You might want to memorize it if you haven't already. God is teaching us more about Himself. He's guiding us to trust God more. He's helping us to share comfort with others. Helping us to strengthen our fellow believers. He's working to bring honor to Himself. He's pointing us to a heavenly country. He's proving our faith and love is genuine. He's increasing our endurance. God is working to redirect our hope to remind us of the end of all things. He's working to keep us humble. He's working to make us more holy. And He's working to bring a good outcome for His children. So the question is, how is God working in the midst of this mess? Thirteen answers. Now the next question is this. How are you working in the midst of the mess.
I'm not going to go there tonight. I'm going to save it for next time. So I don't have time right now, okay? How God's working and how we're working. Let's think about it together in the next days and ask God how we may serve Him faithfully in these days of some tribulation. Certainly not as much for us as for some of our brothers and sisters, but uh, it is there. Uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity we've had for a few minutes to uh, just encourage and strengthen ourselves in the Word of God. It's reminded us that you are doing things in the midst of all the circumstances of life, our personal trials, the the worldwide things, the political matters, the uh, nation and its upheavals, and uh, all the, the, the things with the circumstances in which we find ourselves right now. O Lord our God in heaven, we ask that you would guide us in these matters and know that you are working in at least these 13 ways in your world. And for that we give you thanks. We, we marvel at your infinite wisdom and in your ability to do all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.